We call this life under the rule of God the kingdom agenda. The visible manifestation of the comprehensive rule of God over every area of life. This life under the rule of God is an ordered life. It is a life where he is influencing our decisions, our direction, and our relationships. The culture, because it does not care A few months ago, Dr. Tony Evans and his four adult children, who all serve with him in ministry at their church, Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship, came together for an event called Kingdom Legacy. Dr. Evans delivered a powerful message with the text for the sermon coming from Psalm 128. My favorite Psalm is Psalm 128 because that Psalm outlines the flow of an ordered legacy. And the reason I love it as well is because it's the story of my father. It is his story lived out in that Psalm but it also summarizes God's legacy, the flow of life as God would have it. You see, this wasn't a new message. Dr. Evans preached it 30 years ago at a series of stadium events called Promise Keepers. He starts out in verses one and two and he says, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and who walks in his ways. He goes on to say, when you walk in his ways, you have the fruit of your labor. It will go well with you and you will be happy. But it wasn't new at Promise Keepers. This was a message Dr. Evans workshopped and refined at his kitchen table. His audience was his wife Lois and their four children who had a propensity to crawl under the table and ask all manner of questions, both relevant and irrelevant. The failure to put him in our individual lives in the position of priority will affect everything else. If you're a messed up person and you have a family, you're gonna to contribute to a messed up family. If you're a messed up person contributing to a messed up family and your messed up family goes to church, then your messed up family is gonna to contribute to a messed up church. But even before then, this kingdom message was being shaped in Tony through his time at Dallas Theological Seminary. It was being shaped by his mentors at Carver, a tiny Bible college for black students in the heart of Atlanta. If you're a messed up person contributing to a messed up family that's now contributing to a messed up church and your church is supposed to be the light to the neighborhood, then your messed up church is going to make its contribution to a messed up community. If you're a messed up person contributing to a messed up family leading to a messed up church that's resulting in a messed up neighborhood and your neighborhood's part of the city, then your messed up neighborhood is going to make its contribution to a messed up city. As a teen, this message was being nurtured by early black evangelists like B. Sam Hart and Tom Skinner. It was birthed in his childhood home in Baltimore, Maryland, where his dad, Arthur, had a dramatic conversion experience and led his entire family to the Lord. If you're a messed up person, contributing to a messed up family, resulting in a messed up church, leading to a messed up neighborhood that resides in a messed up city as part of a messed up county, and now your county's part of the state, well now your messed up county is going to make its contribution to a messed up state. So if we're honest with ourselves these last several years, the representation the evangelical church has received in the media has been focused on messed up people who keep perpetuating a messed up world. If you're a messed up person, contributing to a messed up family, resulting in a messed up church, that's part of a messed up neighborhood, and resides in a messed up city, and contributes to a messed up county, that now resides in a messed up nation, then your nation's part of the world. Your messed up nation is gonna make its contribution to a messed up world. 
We asked, where are the good stories? The stories of the guys who are doing it right. The stories about those like Paul who have fought the good fight, who have kept the faith. So that's what we set out to do. Tell the story of God's faithfulness, his provision and grace through the life of an obedient servant, Dr. Tony Evans. So if you want a better world, composed of better nations, inhabit of better states, because they're made up of better counties, composed of better cities, that are made up of better neighborhoods, illuminated by better churches, because they're made up of better families, we got to start out by becoming better people under the rule of God. And so it all starts with prioritizing our commitment to God. Dr. Evans agreed to sit with us for a series of wide-ranging interviews. We wanted to give listeners a peek behind the curtain, see the nitty-gritty of how he maintained such a high level of ministry for so many years. We wanted the good stories, the stories you hear sitting at the kitchen table with friends and family. And along the way, we discovered a few things about Dr. Evans. He has a supernatural passion for the Word, an inexhaustible capacity to ask questions and learn, and an ironclad resolution to never go it alone. I hope you guys are ready. Let's buckle up, friends. Tony's about to take us to church, but he's also going to take us to his home, his work, and the kingdom agenda. Welcome to Start to Finish, the life and ministry of Dr. Tony Evans. Episode one, The Go-Getter. Team, are we, we ready to roll so we can just... Lock and load here. Okay. <laughs> well, Dr. Evans, it is an incredible honor to be able to have this conversation with you. Thank um, you. And the, the honor as well uh, of, of getting to be here with you, and I hope convert you to finally follow God's team, the New Orleans Saints, <laughs> as, your, as your number one team in life. And that might be a little tough, but you can try. <laughs> well, Dr. Evans, I, I really am thankful for uh, the privilege of, of getting to, to sit with you and uh, kind of reflect. You know, I'd love to just kind of talk about that, the, the power of reflection in your own life. How have you done that at certain moments that has empowered you to keep pressing on and moving forward? Well, you know, throughout life, you, you get these moments of reminders. Right of the faithfulness of God, of your history, of the ups and downs, uh, you know, their dates, their events, their, you know, and then I'm surrounded by my kids actually too much. And uh, so they are, they are constant reminders of our history together right. as a family and, uh, and as a ministry, because those were so integrated in all of, all of my, my uh, adult life. Right. So, uh, so those reflections are just in perpetuity. They're just there naturally as we go through the different uh, seasons. Right. Um, my wife Before we get too far down the road here, I wanted to introduce myself. I'm Rob Wilton. I'm a pastor of a church plant in Pittsburgh. Before that, I planted a church in New Orleans in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, while also having the incredible privilege of serving as a chaplain for the New Orleans Saints for the past 13 years. I'm the son of a pastor who's in fact, the son of a pastor. And when the North American Mission Board asked me if I'd like to interview Dr. Tony Evans about his life and ministry, you got to believe I jumped at the chance. I would love to jump all the way back to the early days of your life. Okay. And how pivotal it was growing up, 
um, first of all, you know, in a home that uh, didn't know Jesus. Well, um, during this during this era, there was a ch- changing neighborhood. Okay, it had been heavily Anglo and Jewish row houses, but as African Americans began to move in, that was the a white flight kind right. of time. Right. My father came across this this house that I grew up in, and he had to borrow $500 from his father to be able to purchase our home for $11,000. So it was $11,000 for this row house, uh, and it would be the first house that they would own. And it was during that time in the home that there was a lot of conflict between my mother, marital conflict. Right. Um, um, my father used to make a way to make uh, ends meet. He used to make brandy in the basement. <laughs> he would make brandy and 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 sell it to the neighbors. Yeah. And um, uh, he was fairly strict. He was a longshoreman. Okay. So he was a stevedore. He worked on the waterfront, loading and unloading ships. Right. So they would work on call based on how ships came in. So if a, a lot of ships came in, he'd have work. If no ships came in, he didn't have work. So we would go long periods of time where he would not have work, and then we'd have times when there were a lot of works. Well, everybody who knows me knows that I don't eat fish. <laughs> and uh, On the coast, there in Baltimore, I, I, you right. don't eat fish. I don't eat fish. <laughs> and, and, I, and the reason I don't eat fish was because during that time when my father was not working and therefore we didn't have income coming in, he would go fishing and he would catch herring and herring are fish with a zillion bones in them, small bones. So we had fish for breakfast, fish for lunch, fish for dinner and fish for dessert. So I did develop this disdain for fish coming out of that, which has lasted to this day. Okay. (laughs) When I smell fish, I go into convulsions. Okay. And so I have fond uh, fond and not so fond remembrance of that. In the early days uh, of my life, there was a lot of uh, tension in our home, conflict in our home. Um, We were eking out a living uh, in urban Baltimore. And so there was a lot of conflict, and I, I remember that very clearly. And and we would say today that, looking back, that it didn't look like our family was going to make it in terms of a stable uh, nuclear home. But um, my mother was invited to a church service by a friend of hers, and she, uh, and we we went to church, or we were sent to church. But it really, there was no dynamic to it. Right. Uh, uh, spiritual dynamic. But then my mother asked my father to go with her to this church. And it was a, um, a Plymouth Brethren Assembly, which was basically unknown in the African-American context. So my mother went, my father went with her uh, to just, you know, be there because he was asked to. And these two men witnessed to my father at the end of the service of that church. Wow. And evidently, uh, something stuck because when he came home, he went down to the basement and my father then got on his knees Hmm. 
and accepted Christ. And immediately there was a massive change of life. How old was your father at this point? He's 30 years old. Okay. My father's 30 years old. So I'm between 10 and 11 right now. And there's this immediate shift. Hmm. Uh, It was, uh, it's almost like a Damascus Road kind of situation there where he wanted, he got hungry for God and hungry for the things of God. So he began going to this little small church. He then took the family there. Now, during this time, my mother, who had not yet become a Christian, she didn't like my father as a sinner, but she couldn't stand him as a saint because <laughs> he was like too Christian. Yeah. Okay. This was too radical a, a transformation uh, for her to get used to. And right. so she kind of made it a little hard for him, but he persevered. He would uh, have devotions, his own personal devotions late at night when she was asleep. So it wouldn't be a conflict about that. But between six months and a year later, she came downstairs in like at midnight or something. And she said to my father, whatever this is that you have must be real. Wow. Because you, you, this, this thing has changed your whole life. How can I have it too? And so my father led my mother to Christ. Then there's four of us. I'm the oldest of four. Uh, My father led us to Christ. So, uh, you know, I've heard all the stories my whole life of the trajectory of this man's life completely turning and pivoting 180 degrees after he met Jesus. Priscilla Shire is a world-famous author, Bible teacher, and actress starring in the Kendrick Brothers' War Room. She's also Tony Evans' second daughter. It changed the way he decided he needed to make money for his family, um, the commitment that he needed to have to not just raising kids who were maybe, you know, just good citizens and respectful of authority and all those things that matter. Right. But now eternal ramifications were placed on what he wanted for his children. He wanted them to be kingdom minded, not just good citizens for citizenship's sake, but because he wanted them to glorify God. He wanted them to be able to um, build up treasures in heaven. And so, I mean, his whole focus radically changed. And as a result of that, the trickle-down effect really did start with my grandmother first, and then, you know, the four kids, including dad, coming to know Jesus. And um, and then, of course, because dad's life was so lit on fire, because he saw his father um, love Jesus so fully, that, in a way, trickled down to all of us. And, you know, none of us in this whole chain of of generations has been perfect. There's no perfection there at all. Right, right. But I will say that on both of my grandfather's sides, the light that they had, the fire, the fervor, the passion, the single-minded devotedness to follow Jesus, oh man, that has passed down from one generation to the next, so I'm grateful right. for it. We started all then going to this this little church assembly and um that's that was the context in which I began to fall in love with the Word of God. Right, and um, my father's faith became a dynamic. I mean, we had family devotions. Right, we went to church together when he didn't have to work. Uh, uh, so it was a uh, it was a totally transformational dynamic. Yeah, led by him. We didn't understand the conflict until um, that greatly shifted. 
you know, at the point of convergence. Right. So, um, but my, my mother was very resistant to his Christian faith initially. Mm-hmm. She would criticize it. She'd make fun of it. She would uh, re- resent it. But my father was just steadfast. He would pray for her, pray for our family. Do you remember moments where he would like press in about Jesus and the gospel? And oh, yeah, was we, it just through life witness? And it was a combination. Yeah, yeah. He would press in and talk to us. Yep. Because he was now going to this church, we were going with him. Right. And at first, my mother was not, but then she began. So she began to be surrounded by this Christian perspective and influence of my father. I mean, he's one of the greatest illustrations of perseverance of love (laughs) in a, in a antagonistic environment that I have ever seen. Right. And it paid off because it, it uh, totally transformed uh, my mother's uh, belief system and her, her faith walk. So when two daddy got saved, he, he just went, Full speed, right. full speed ahead. Right. You know, we're not missing church. Uh, we're not missing the Bible study. We're going to have Bible study at home. And he just, it was a faithful thing. Two Daddy is the name the grandchildren gave Tony's dad, Arthur. And this is Jonathan Evans, former NFL fullback and current chaplain of the Dallas Cowboys, the next gen pastor at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship, and Dr. Evans' youngest child. Where Uncle Bo, my dad's brother, you know, uh, you know, there were stories about him being a little bit more salty because it was like, man, all the stuff we can't do now. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because you found this faith. Now we can't do this. <laughs> we can't go here. We can't. So once two daddy right. and two mama got on track, there were there was no detours. You know, they were on track. And right. so my dad is that way. And he's just like, no, this is how we do it. This is where uh, where we're going. This is and so he's very faithful. A man with passion and commitment for the Lord just can't sit still. It wasn't long before Arthur Evans took his faith into the world. Tony shared his father's eagerness for the word and went with him whenever he could. Yeah, uh, didn't know it, uh, as that it would be as foundational as it was, but it right. was uh, pre, pre-preparation. Yeah. <laughs> How much of it was at that point just, man, I'm with dad? I'm with dad. I'm yeah. with dad. I'm, I'm ministering with dad more— because he's a lay minister, I'm yeah. a lay minister's kid, and uh, because you know he wasn't in a formal role at that point, he was just in a in a lay role as a committed Christian, and I'm just hanging with Dad doing ministry stuff. Now, Doctor, I got I just got to stop there because I know this is gonna bless somebody, but like, how how impactful was that to be with your dad? Serving Jesus together. Very foundational. One, yep. because of the high regard I had, had for my father, still have for my father, mm. for the discipline, perseverance he showed, for the commitment to his family he demonstrated, for the countercultural framework that he operated from. The Bible was the dominant influencer. Yeah. I mean, the, what I got from him was a high view of Scripture. Do you remember a, a moment or a time where you began to personally also pursue the Word? You know, obviously, he was a catalyst for you. Mm-hmm. But then, obviously, you, you started to own it. And I did. And the way I know I owned it was we had Wednesday night Bible study. 
And when and often he would have to work on Wednesday nights and would not be able to go. And I would walk to church on my own. And that would be five mile walk. <laughs> and the fact that I would do a four to five mile walk. Not necessarily forced. No. That that wasn't it wouldn't be forced. Okay. Yeah. The fact that I would do a four out of your own walk. desire. Yes. Wow. So that that let that was a practical manifestation of hunger. When did you officially kind of start preaching? Probably my first well my father would have me doing a little something in the prisons. So can you give me a picture of that? Because you know, I want I wanna I want to get behind the curtain. Is he giving you a heads up on the way, or is he putting you on the spot? Like, you're in front of all these inmates, well, I'm, and he's I'm like— sure he would tell me. He <laughs> would tell me. One time I preached outdoors on the back of a truck. And but he gave you a little heads up. Yeah, he gave me a little heads up. No, yeah, Any yeah. coaching or helping you put the sermon together? Well, I, I, I think he thought I'd heard him enough okay. to be able to just yeah. do what I was doing. Yeah. And then— um, Probably 18 is when I did the first church preaching. Do you remember that experience? Was there? I do remember that experience um, because I made some people mad. <laughs> uh, I, how, I, ma- how many I, notes did you have, and how long did it go? I don't remember um, how, how theological <laughs> or lengthy the sermon was, but I do remember what I preached about, and it was the young prophet who was told to go back and not stay in the city and he disobeyed God listening to the old prophet and he was mauled by a lion. Why I would preach that, I have no idea. <laughs> this young kid's coming in and yeah, stones. Yeah, I don't know why, I don't know why, I don't know where that came from. Uh, but anyway, that's what I remember. We'll be right back. How do you know if a pastor needs encouragement? Does he have a pulse? Yes then he needs encouragement. Whether you're a new or seasoned pastor, you likely have a resource library and tools for sermon preparation. But what about other aspects of ministry? Where do you turn for encouragement in scripture? On Pastor Resources, you will find tools to encourage and equip you personally and pastorally. These resources, compiled by the North American Mission Board, will help you engage with other pastors, equip you for the everyday grind of ministry, encourage you to live out your calling with confidence, Sign up for our new monthly newsletter and get a free download of the ebook, A Ministry Toolkit for Pastors. The free ministry toolkit for pastors provides lists of passages on pastoral care, classic and contemporary wedding outlines, funeral preparation tips and sermons, articles from trusted pastors to help you lead well. Go to nam.net slash pastors or check out the episode show notes. It's so easy to get swept up by the passion a young Tony Evans had for the word and for preaching it to others. But I want to draw your attention back to something he said toward the beginning. Well, um, during this era, there was a changing neighborhood. Okay. It had been heavily Anglo and Jewish. Row houses. But as African-Americans began to move in, that was the a white my kind of time. Right. My father came Racism and the resulting laws of segregation were woven into the fabric of society. As we've listened to Dr. Evans and others talk about these years, the word that keeps ringing in my ears is blatant. 
We have a hard time conceiving of just how brazen the country's embrace of racism and segregation was, of just how brazen the church's embrace of it was. It was impossible for Tony to escape and was an unavoidable building block in shaping his theology. We were raised in an African-American context because of that changing community, but my father kept the radio on Christian broadcasting all the time. So we would hear, uh, you know, the Oliver B. Greens and the Billy Grahams. And, uh, so there was a lot of that kind of influence that permeated our home from Christian radio that would be more of the evangelical line. Right. So it's, you're kind of living in two worlds, yeah. kind of hearing that world, but you're living in a social context right. of segregation, a social context of a, a racial impropriety uh, that created that tension of being in two worlds at one time, not knowing that back then that would actually served me well right. to walk in right. the dual realities that I was being raised in at that time. Were you aware of it growing up? Like, what's what's kind of the story there? Well, there were different levels of awareness. I was aware of it because there were certain environments I could not participate in. There was a restaurant called the White Tower Restaurant. or It's more of a fast food place. And it's a hamburger place. And, it, and uh, I remember driving with my father one time, and he, I said, Dad, let's go in there and get a hamburger. And he told me we, they will not allow us in there. Wow. And uh, uh, he was told me, I'm, a, I'm young at that point, but right. he was, I was hearing about segregation. And then there were different, um, well, I went to an all-black high school, and um, some of the issues were raised and now I'm coming into a civil rights era. And um, and coming into that era, it's becoming now more news, more newsworthy in terms of the disparities that right. were operating in the culture. Right. And it's becoming now front page. And then the biggest event was the assassination of Martin Luther King. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. America is shocked and saddened by the brutal slaying tonight of Dr. Martin Luther King. I ask every citizen to reject the blind violence that has struck Dr. King, who lived by nonviolence. I was over at a friend's house okay. and breaking news. Martin Luther King has been shot. Wow. And um, and the paralyzing effect of that in that house that day and all throughout the community. Here in Memphis, of course, a great deal of shock, a great deal of confusion, and a great deal of uh, uh, some violence. I can't say a great deal because I don't really know. I do know that uh, police are very concerned that the fire department are, is moving uh, units around the streets and that uh, there is some rock throwing and some fires reported and some shooting. The full extent of, at, at this time from this vantage point can't be uh, assessed. The riots that began in Memphis quickly spilled into other cities, including Baltimore. This is Maryland Governor Spiro Agnew addressing the media in the opening days of the riot. 
We have taken the following steps to restore law and order in our state. And you may be sure that the situation is under control and under constant vigilance of state and local authorities. We have proclaimed a state of emergency in Baltimore City and Baltimore County. A curfew has been imposed in Baltimore City. The Baltimore riot of 1968 lasted eight days. Six people died. Over 700 were injured, over 5,000 arrested, and more than 1,200 fires started by rioters. Every available unit of the Maryland National Guard has been fully mobilized and deployed within the city. In addition, at 6.11 this evening, I requested federal reinforcements to further secure the city. In response to Governor Agnew's request, President Johnson invoked the Insurrection Act of 1807 and called up U.S. Army airborne units from North Carolina. I remember the National Guard being out in front of my house. And so I can picture now the, all, the, uh, all the guardsmen um, who were in front of my house. I mean, there were dozens and dozens just on my block right. to keep uh, rioting uh, from escalating any further than it had already because there were a lot of destructions, uh, dis- a lot of destruction taking place. And I was, we, we couldn't go out. There's a curfew. Uh, so I'd asked my father, I said, you know, these, these people are trying to keep peace. Should I, can we take them some water? I, I don't even know why that thought came up to my mind. Right. But I, I, I wanted to do something, and I, yeah. I wasn't in a position to do much. But I said, can we take them some water? Uh, uh, I guess from one side, that could have been looked at aiding and abetting the enemy. On the other side, there was this order that, that was keeping our home safe. And so I'm, I'm in between that. And my father told me, no, you can't, no, you can't go out there. You can't, you can't go out there. Uh, so I've always had this sensitivity to order right. and peace. And at the same time, correction of error. Mm. And those two operate Consistently, so when I think about that story right. of wanting to go take water, I, I can see I'm feeling both of those realities operating inside of me at the same time. Right. Uh, the 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 tension of let's have order, but also why they need to be there in the first place, and it right. and, and that is a constant dialectic tension that I I think I still carry with me today, you know, right. living in two worlds, a yes. world of conservative theology and social sensitivity. Yes. And uh, bringing those two together, which hasn't been done well in general Christianity. Uh, so one of the things that was missing clearly, with a very few exceptions, was the refusal of biblicists. Mm to speak into the situation biblically. Mm. In fact, they were, many were, the thought I'm having is they were complicit. Okay. Either by silence 
or by just judging one side of the equation. And that silence was was loud. Yes. Yes. It was very loud. Now there's only one issue yep. that the whole one well, the whole nation is talking about, right. but most certainly uh being personalized to the African American community. And that that event probably was the biggest social wake-up call to me because mm-hmm. prior to that, I had been used to what had been normalized. Right. But that was an intrusion into normalcy. Right. And that intrusion into normalcy raised the issue. So, so now I've got to grapple with the social realities and the theological context because what I didn't mention was that many of the strong Bible-teaching churches were segregated. Mm-hmm. Mm. And black people could not attend there mm. or be welcomed there. Mm. And my father would even talk about that, but they would have conservative theology. Right. And then, you know, then that that became even greater as you found out, right. you know, the Bob Jones universities wouldn't right. accept black students and, right. and and how segregation was being maintained, propagated, endorsed, legislated by evangelicals. Mm. And so that so that wake up call over there with a conservative, strong bibliocentric framework, mm-hmm. and over here a social construct uh, that did not adhere to all the conservative theologies, but did have a cry for justice. So, right. so I'm I'm working and walking and and uh, meandering between these two dynamics. Do you remember your your dad, mom pressing into moments in your home just? teaching you or speaking to that moment? And do you you feel, you know, obviously God's called you with a sense of mission in regards to, uh, you know, the, the, the reality of what the Bible teaches and compelling from that a move towards social justice and the mission part had not come yet. Okay. The mission part. I'm now at the recognition part during that era. There, There is no mission. There is just a, a expanded, a expanded sense of reality. Right. Reality, because now it's the the during that whole civil rights period, the whole uh, black pride movement was occurring. It occurred with the the division between uh, Martin Luther King and Stokely Carmichael, Mm. uh, Black Panthers. We are on the move for our liberation. We have been tired of trying to prove things to white people. We are tired of trying to explain to white people that we're not going to hurt them. We are concerned with getting the things we want the things that we have to have to be able to function. The question is, can white people allow for that in this country? The question is, will white people overcome their racism and allow for that to happen in this country? If that does not happen, brothers and sisters, we have no choice but to say very clearly, move over or we go move on over you. Thank you. You got these different dynamics of response to racism. You got the rise of the nation of Islam. Right. And you got all of this, and everybody's not agreeing with everybody. I mean, they're agreeing with the problem, but not the solution. And so you're being hit with all of this. 
and um, and you're trying to make sense of it. You got this conservative theology, but you see the the contradiction and the inconsistencies over here. But you also know over here. Uh, the right theology is that I'm learning over here is not being attached to it so that it's a confusing time. It's an awareness time. Yep. And I love that recognition. Like there's a, there's an awareness in this season of your life that there's a gap here. Right. There's a gap. That that would be a good way to put it. Yeah. And not knowing at that season, at that time, how to penetrate that gap. Do you you remember preachers preaching? Uh, and and speaking in regards to these important issues at that time, very limitedly. Yeah, that was very limitedly. Uh, and most of the preachers that I heard, the few exceptions, uh, um, were either they were either silent about it, or condemning the riots, or condemning even some of the marches. Mm that were going on, mm. um, it would be the more marginal or liberal preachers who would talk about it more overtly. Right. You know, so so the evangelical side was very, uh, very limited. Right. You know, Billy Graham, uh, that was an interesting dynamic about Billy Graham because he would be being criticized by the fundamentalists, I'll use that term back right. then, for um, this cooperative evangelism. Right. Having Catholics on the platform and all that would be criticized. Right. But at the same time, he would not have segregated crusades. Mm. So you got this conservative thing over here. Yeah. But this social reality over here. Yeah. So that was even a contradiction. Yeah. You know? I wonder if you could tell us, sir what your feeling is about the segregation of Negroes and whites. Well, I think that we have uh, answered that many times by the fact that we don't have any segregation in our meetings. And we have Negro choir members, we have Negro counselors. This is Billy Graham in 1957 on NBC's Meet the Press. We have Negro ministers leading in prayer. When people come to the cross of Christ, uh, they are all the same color in Christ's sight. The Bible says that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. I would listen to the Hour of Decision. Yeah, yeah, uh, on radio um, uh, because that would be part of Christian broadcasting right. at that time, and um, so I knew him from afar in that way, and so I do remember hearing him on radio. Uh, but then you would have people like John R. Rice on radio, mm. who's a segregationist, mm-hmm. but who's touting the authority of Scripture, yep. you know, the Bible, and yep. somehow it did not translate to the issue of race. I want to talk to you about the very serious subject, the sevenfold sin of those who do not win souls. Yes, you understood me the first time, sin, the sevenfold sin of those who do not win souls. If you're saved, if you're born again, if you're not a soul winner, you're living in sin every day. Dr. John R. Rice was editor of The Sword of the Lord, a fundamentalist Christian publication. Here's a quote from an editorial he wrote. It is better for both Negroes and whites to run with their own kind and intermarry with their own kind. The mixing of races widely differing is almost never wise. Thus, if a girl would do wrong to marry a Negro boy, she would be wrong to keep company with him, mixing regularly with him in social life.
There was this event in New York every year, a conference, a Bible conference. Mm. And at this Bible conference at uh, Grace Chapel in New York and Harlem, mm. and we would go there every year. Mm. And this was conservative blacks who would gather together for a Bible conference. It was at that conference that I heard a speaker named Tom Skinner. That was a revolutionary moment when I heard Tom Skinner. Now, at this point, I'd already been exposed to a lot of the conservative Bible teachers. Right. But this one was like off the chain. I mean, it, it was... Uh, and his story he was a gang leader in New York, and and he got saved. But he became an evangelist. But he would attack the social issues. During slavery, the slave master allowed no marriages. Rather, the slave master developed what was known as the stud system, where a healthy male slave was forced to cohabit with a healthy female slave in order to bear healthy children. When the woman became pregnant, he was moved to another quarters to do the same thing. And within the course of 10 years, he could have brought into the world a hundred children, but never allowed to father any of them. Very few children went around the plantation saying mommy or daddy because they didn't know who they were. Now keep in mind that numbers of slave masters were also Christians. These same slave masters, many of them deacons and elders in their own local churches, would have never tolerated sexual immorality in their own church, but found no difficulty in putting a black slave woman and a black slave man under immoral conditions together for the purpose of breeding slaves to maintain the economic system. He had become the dominant evangelical conservative speaker Mm -hmm. in that era, Mm -hmm. but he did not shy away from the race issue, and he did not shy away from something else that I didn't know then would affect me now, and that is a perspective on the kingdom. We'll be right back. The unique hardships of our modern lives can often feel insurmountable, but God's Word reveals that there is no obstacle, habit, or situation we face that Jesus hasn't already given us the power to conquer. Anyone who is in Christ is already an overcomer, and it's time to start living like one. Introducing Living as an Overcomer, Eternal Motivation for Earthly Success, from pastor, author, Dr. Tony Evans. Discover God's call upon your life and receive everything you need to make Christ's victory experienced reality. Living as an Overcomer, coming January 2024. And so, a teenage Tony found himself living in two different realities. The first of theological conservatism heard from his father in church and from Christian radio, the second of segregation and racism. The cognitive dissonance came from the leaders of the first reality endorsing the second, silently or otherwise. Do you remember how you felt then? And can you trace that back to now, say, those were the beginning stages of a call, of a, of a, of a burden upon your heart to, to be one who does preach? Biblically and systematically? Well, I think during that specific time, the two were distinct. They had not been linked, Hmm. as you're you're asking the question. The linking had not occurred. Hmm. They were two realities that I saw and recognized without a linking. 
it wasn't till I was 18 that a different level of recognition occurred. Because at 18, I was involved in an evangelistic crusade, and our church was part of that. It was led by an evangelist called B. Sam Hart in Philadelphia. This evangelist, he would do evangelistic tent crusades and then plant churches. Back in the in the 60s, well, my, my dad started um, the Grand Old Gospel Fellowship. This is Dr. Tony Hart, the son of B. Sam Hart, who currently runs the Grand Old Gospel Fellowship. He was a young teen when his father brought their tent to Baltimore. When I was a kid, you know, I remember the big tent that was, uh, he would put up a tent in the inner city on an empty lot or something and preach for two or three weeks and, and then take those converts and get a church started. And so he would take this tent and go around and plant churches. And he did that in Baltimore in the mid sixties. And uh, Tony Evans' father, Arthur, was an elder at a little small brethren assembly there in Baltimore. And they were a cooperating church in this crusade effort. And so Tony, I guess because his family was involved, he would be there at the meetings. It was a very interesting dynamic. Our church was involved with that, with that event. And I can remember the location of it on North Avenue in Baltimore, the evangelistic crusade. And I was, uh, so I, I did little parts with our church. So we went the first night. And the first night he preached not to non-Christians, he preached to Christians. And at that event, which mainly was mostly black people, um, he challenged Christians to go all in with, with the Lord. And that was the day I made a decision for ministry. Hmm. That event. 18. I'm 18 years old then. I met him and got to talking to him. And he saw a lot of my excitement and energy. And he was looking for somebody to work with him. So my dad gave him some tasks to do, and he would fulfill each one and accomplish them. Um, I think one of them was, uh, and I was a little kid then, um, but uh, one of them, I understand, was to go get the mayor from Baltimore to show up. And he had an event coming up in Guyana, South America, that would be a few months down the road. And I guess he saw my energy. He said, he says, I want you to get me a meeting with the mayor. He says, if you get me a meeting with the mayor, I'm going to send you to South America to represent the next crusade that was going to be there. Right. I got him a meeting with the mayor. Had you for most of your life stayed kind of in the Northeast? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I hadn't gone very, I hadn't yeah. traveled hardly anywhere. Right. Yeah. Well, another thing happened in this scenario, and that was a man named Martin Resnick. Okay. Let me back up a little bit. I wanted a job, and somebody told me about they were hiring at Utahwood Gardens, which was an event facility where Martin Resnick was the person who either owned it or was renting it. He's Jewish, and he would host these weddings or various kinds of social events, and they needed kitchen workers. So I knew a little bit about hiring young people. And he was one of the first young people I hired. Martin Resnick is in his 90s, still lives in Baltimore, and has a vibrant friendship with Dr. Evans to this day. And why maybe think that he was kind of different or special, but because he lived the furthest away from my location I was working. And um, 
he was the only one that came in early, not on time, but early. That was kind of surprising because most known people I was hiring those days who lived closer were much later in coming to work and you won't have to look for them. So I became a dishwasher. I worked on the weekends because I was in school. And I would work uh, washing dishes, basically. So after a number of months doing this, he called me to his office. Now, this was a major deal for me, even as a dishwasher, because I was seeing a world I had never seen before. Hmm. This was a level of exposure. The people I saw, what they did, how things worked, I was observing another world. He uh, was the person my wife wanted to work with the most. She asked on numerous occasions to make sure that anybody be assigned to, to work with her in the kitchen would be Tony. And that was quite unusual. In those days when we first started, not many people wanted, were asking for young people to be their, their aid and to help them. But he showed a great deal of integrity, a great deal of uh, uh, ability to uh, learn and uh, ask questions and follow through. So I would observe it and do my job. He called me to his office and he said, basically, I've been observing you. You know, you're here on time, you do your work, you got a good attitude. He goes down all of these positive things, which I didn't know he was observing. A lot of the young men we were hiring, you give them a job, you, go, you do, and you go searching for them later on to see where they are. And you should find them, once they finish their job, they were hiding, they wouldn't get them extra work to do. Tony was just the opposite. He would finish the job, come to you and say, what else do you want me to do? And he says, I'm looking for somebody because my wife has to be here on the weekends to help me cook for these events, to take my kids to Saturday and Sunday school for the Jewish faith. And so is this something you would be interested in doing? I, I couldn't believe what I'm hearing with my ears. He is asking me to do this. I mean, I'm a dishwasher, right. you know? Right. And of course, I accepted the opportunity. And so that integrated me into his family mm. and into his world. Mm. So this is a whole nother world now. He's Jewish, but he had great social sensitivity. So I'm there every Saturday and Sunday morning early, mainly Saturdays, take the kids to school, pick them up from school. So I'm now integrated into the family and into the business. Very pivotal was a conversation I had with him one day when I was asking him about a future working with him. So he came to me and he said, I'd like to come work for you as a manager. I said, Tony, I'd love to have you work for me as a manager. It would take you a few years to have a little maturity in you. And people here would respect you, but more because, not just of your age, but because of your experience and knowledge about the business. So, but my suggestion is find a way to go to college. He said, that's getting very well, buddy. Thank you very much. He said, but that's not much, not much help for me. I said, tell all you, Johnny, because I have so much respect and love and care for you. I will pay one half your college education for four years. I want you to go to college, learn, and then come back and work, and then you'll be out here with a job as a general manager in my company. 
go to college for four years, and I hope that by that time, uh, I'll be needing you, and you come out of graduate school, I have a position for you. I said, great, Tony, go to school and come back. But don't go too soon, I can still use you around here right now. So he stayed around until he went to college, and uh, we kept communicating the entire time he was in school, because it was more than just a relationship, but joy and joy. It was, I had a, a love affair. I truly loved him as another son. Loved him the respect that he showed for everybody who worked in the company. And he said to me, I tell you what, if you will go to college and get your degree, I will bring you back as a manager. I had a guaranteed job because of our relationship and he was happy with my work and all of that. Now, this is prior to the event with Sam Hart. So I'm now thinking, I'm going to go to college, major in right. the, this whole area. Yeah, I'm coming back to be a manager and <laughs> I'm coming back to get be into this business. <laughs> and then I have this event. Oh, wow. Which sends me on a whole nother trajectory. Wow. Can I ask a little bit about the, the faithfulness? <laughs> I've recently preached on Nehemiah. He's cupbearer to the king. You don't become cupbearer to the king overnight. <laughs> right, right. There's, there's years of faithfulness when no one's watching. I had learned some principles of perseverance from my father. There you go. I love that. I'd learned some principles of integrity from my father. I didn't curse mm. like many of my contemporaries did. I didn't lose my temper. Mm. I wasn't bitter. None of that because I had not seen that wow. from my father. And my father would not tolerate that either because he was a, 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 a fairly strong disciplinarian. So... So I just kind of reflected what I was being raised to operate on in a different, at a different world. I was raised with a different worldview than many of my contemporaries due to our faith, the, 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 the presence of our faith in the context of my home and the influence of my father in particular. So that's so powerful, Dr. Tony. So like that just reflected wow. in how I operated and yeah. and a sense of dignity, a sense of honesty. Mm. Um, not perfect, but 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 fairly consistent in, in that orientation mindset. Right. Were there any trigger moments that that that, you know, compelled you to then ask him to be a part of the business? Do you remember having like a moment, or was it just? I, I I remember asking him, "Yeah, what would it take to grow in the business?" He answered and gave me a guarantee of a job. So now, the thought of college has now become a dominant thought. Yep. Because you had now hope and expectation. Hope. That's yeah, good. Hope. So, Mr. Resnick, you know, obviously gives you this deal. Mm-hmm. Gives me this deal. I but but God. You know, kind of wrecks your life. Yeah. And calls you into ministry. What did he think of that? He went okay. with it. I guess I was very, just not so surprised because of the family influence and his mom and dad, the way that they all had good voices. They're all churchgivers. He was involved with the, and the family's involved with the church. It was obvious that he was influenced by, by what he saw within the family. And I knew that one time, they would have a great influence in where he wind up and so being in the ministry seemed to be a natural next step 
to what he what he learned and, and received from the family background and the influence they, they, they gave to them. And so I wasn't surprised but by the pleasant happiness he really won. He had the direction in which he wanted to go into. Only one negative about the whole thing. I lost a potential general manager. When Sam Hart challenged me about going to college in Atlanta to Carver College, um, the question was, how am I going to do this? Because my parents weren't in a position to send me to college financially. So Martin Resnick, even though it wasn't in the line of what he was talking to me about, I was going to college, and right. he wanted to incentivize that. So he supported me that first year with the understanding that I was going to work hard and get scholarships and do that. So he would always, even with his own kids, he would provide an incentive, but you had to prove okay. that you were serious. He, yep. just, he just wasn't going to do stuff to do stuff. It, it wasn't just a full handout. That's right. There was, there was a challenge with Hand up, not hand out. <laughs> that, that was resonant. I love it. And so he, he incentivized that first year, and I was able to get scholarships and right. other things for the ongoing financial support. So as a result of it, uh, our relationship remained the same, uh, but he got his scholarships and they only had to pay one half of his, his education for the person who was there. So, but I was prepared to do more if he needed it. Right. He certainly, he certainly deserved it. And, and, and anybody else who would, have, who would have known him would have helped him the same way. It's one of those. Um, and that's so powerful, yeah. isn't it? In all of our lives, we have um, these Kairos moments, mm. these um, opportune intersecting times when God intersects yeah. uh, His plan with our with our circumstances. Yeah. I call them evidences of grace. Yeah, evidences <laughs> of grace, where He He connects this this thing, and so wow. that's what He did. Um, in that moment uh, with him but also with the event the crusade to change the trajectory but it did I was now lit for college we'll be right back calling all pastors and kingdom leaders Dr. Tony Evans wants you to join him at the Kingdom Leaders Summit you'll experience unforgettable panel discussions and in-depth teachings from Dr. Evans and others. Discover how to apply God's kingdom principles to your ministry, community, and personal life. There's sessions for pastor's wives too. The dates are October 3rd through the 6th. Register now at kap2023.com. That's kap2023.com. Next time on Start to Finish. Our family always hosted missionaries and so forth. And so it was kind of natural for us to host. I, I, we knew Sam Hart. My parents knew Sam Hart and everything. And so this guy was coming through to set up things, Tony Evans, we never heard of him. He seemed enthralled with Lois from the beginning. Don't know why. And he just pursued that all the way, all the way. Uh, Lois wasn't very much interested at first. Well, Dr. Evans came in as Tony, he came from Baltimore. When he came in, he said, I am Tony Evans from Baltimore, and I came here to Carver for one year. And after one year, I'll 
leave and go to my ministry. Start to Finish, the life and ministry of Dr. Tony Evans is a podcast powered by the North American Mission Board. You can get in touch with us at resources at nam.net. That's resources at namb.net. If this podcast is helpful to you, and I really hope that it was, it would be helpful to us if you'd leave a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to and share it with all your friends. Start to Finish is made possible by the cooperation of the Urban Alternative, Dr. Tony Evans, and the Evans family. Our show is written by Neil Hoppy and produced by Kevin Spratt. Editing by Jeremy Spencer. Our sound engineers are Eric Chapman and Aaron Leslie. Our music is by J. Adam Wesley. Trevin Wax is our executive producer. See you next time.